Welcome to the Docs Who Lift podcast, where we distill and simplify the complexities of a healthy lifestyle, exercise, medicine, and weight loss. We're excited to bring you a podcast that's a prescription for clinical practice, scientific recommendations, and just real life. This this is the Docs Who Lift podcast. Hey, and welcome back to the Doc 2 Lift podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Spencer Nadolski, and I got my brother, co-host, Dr. Carl Nadolski Jr., and we are bringing back to the podcast Dr. Grant Tinsley. He is a body composition uh, measurement expert. He has his own lab. He does studies all in uh, the realm of body composition. So welcome back, uh, Grant. Thanks for having me back. Happy to chat with you all again. I wonder if people, before we even start, oh, they're, they're going to see the title of this, but so they're, they're already going to know what we're going to harp on. But this is, we, this, we might as well call this the Peter Atia hater podcast. Because I know. I, and and if, I, there's no way he listens to it, but no, he, I swear we're not targeting Peter Atia. It just happens to be that he's brought up some things recently that are not exactly appropriate and we need to address them. Yeah. To, from to, our perspective, yeah. someone's got to address we have a lot so of, it. So it seems like we're piling on poor Peter T, although he's not poor by any means of the imagination. Not even close. So, okay, we had Grant on before to talk about his his uh, study of looking at home body fat scales, and he went through some of how you actually measure body composition. We're going to do kind of a re, uh, review of how to measure body composition using different methods. Uh, but recently, we did. We also did a quick podcast on this concern of lean mass, lean body mass loss with GLP ones. But now we wanted to bring Grant on to kind of discuss this. We aren't experts in in body composition analysis. We know we understand it enough to uh, make clinical recommendations and things like that, and understand it clinically. But we wanted to kind of get into the nitty gritty with uh, with Grant here. So. Yeah, because, well, first of all, <clears throat> I don't know anybody else who really is a body composition yeah, who, analysis who they, expert Grant? like Grant. Who is? Like, because, because all these people talking about this, all of us clinicians and a lot of researchers don't really know the nuances in the weeds of body composition, but they take the results of some of these right. tests and then they start extrapolating and, yeah. you know, and, and some of it's reasonable, right? I mean, when we talk about basic body composition <clears throat> for our patients, fine, whatever. But um, but when they when we start making some of these big jumps and I don't know, there yeah. people are taking some of these conclusions to extremes that are inappropriate. We, we want an expert that can yes. that can go much more into detail than we could. So here here was the claim. So we already talked about this before. He actually Peter brought up on his blog this concern. Uh, we did a podcast a, a month or so ago about close to a 40% lean body mass loss seen with semaglutide use and whether it was in the study of obesity and those with type 2 diabetes, either uh, the, the Wegovi version, which is the high dose semaglutide 2.4 versus the Ozempic version, which at the time, I believe only went up to one milligram and shows in both studies looks like it was up to a 38, 39% um, lean body mass loss, which is more than what we'd expect. You generally want it to be somewhere between 20 to 30% if you're not doing resistance training. We'd actually want it lower right. um, if you're doing resistance but, training. But there's always lean mass loss in all in general, weight loss interventions. In general. Diet, yeah. surgery, and med, you we're know, pharmaceutical. Have, we're going to have Grant supported. talk about that too. <clears throat> um, and, and of course, and then the other thing is these were relatively small subsets from the studies, you know, using the metrics that they had. 
and there were some real interesting, you know, the other arms, the placebo were goofy. Yeah, we'll talk about that. But, okay, so here's the most recent claim. Peter was on uh, the Megyn Kelly show. Whatever you think about Megyn Kelly, I don't really care. Uh, I've always been a big fan. <laughs> okay. He, he made the claim, and they might have spliced this. Where they might have, I don't know how they got on this topic, but he made the claim that he, one of his patients lost weight, and two-thirds of that weight was uh, lean body mass loss. And he said that this person's getting lighter, but they're getting fatter. That's what he said on the, on, on the little clip. And now, because I'm a social media light and I'm talking about GLP-1 medicines all the time, I'm getting pinged. I had to make a video response about this, but I'm getting pinged all over the place that, see, this guy's doing studies and found that it's mostly lean mass loss. I'm like, first of all, we have, they actually have done studies and shown, real studies, real studies, not, not, not his not random like an anecdotal stuff. And I and before I, we get into the nitty gritty with Grant, Grant just sitting here listening, looking at us, looking at us like we're I, idiots. I did a, I did a poll. I I, smile so, and nod, you know. Yeah, smile and nod. Um, so with my program um, sequence, we have. I can say this publicly because it's been posted publicly. We have over twenty thousand patients on these medicines. I've never seen the signal. Now we don't get DEXAs on everybody, but many of them do get DEXA scans. Many of them do in bodies, and we'll talk about this with Grant again because he talked about this. And then some of them do get bod pods. I've never once seen a signal. I polled all my patients and followers on social media. They were sending me DEXAs and in bodies left and right, and nowhere near. No, the, the, the highest one that I saw was close to what the studies showed. They showed a 38% lean body mass, and we'll talk about this with Grant. This person, though, got substantially stronger. Um, over that time. So we're going to get into how that but could that, be. But. Well, you know, and then, and also just to recall, we talked about this on the other podcast. When we talk about weight, when we talk about the disease of obesity, it is not just about the weight. It's not about even just the amount of fat, right? It's about what harm is the fat doing. And so these medications, they were obviously approved for type 2 diabetes first. They have outstanding glycemic benefits. They have cardiovascular benefits. They have renal benefits. Um, they have fatty liver benefits. So when people with obesity and especially at high risk or especially with complications, the clinical conditions improve. That's the most important thing. Yeah. So now, now we're starting to have people scare people away from the medications that have actual clinical benefit because of this somewhat manufactured concern of excess lean mass loss. Yeah. So that's the context. All right. Grant, we sent you all the data. You took a look <laughs> at it. Give us Tell give us, us your just initial thoughts of, of everything, and I'll start asking you more questions. Yeah, so in the studies, I'll, I'll make one comment from the outset just so I don't um, forget. You all know this. I'm sure many of your listeners do. But uh, as you mentioned, an anecdote with a sample size of one is not the same as a study. And also, if you recall, we might have even gotten to this on the last podcast. Um, typically, the error for one individual with the body composition assessment method whatever it is, is much higher than the group error. So when we talk about, you know, even though it is a smaller subsample, if we have you know, like 40 to 90 people in, in some of these groups we'll talk about, um, some of those random errors that would kind of inflate or deflate changes you'd see, some of those get canceled out. So I'm, I'm actually not particularly surprised that, you know, someone could find an anecdote where it looked like there was this extremely mass loss because you're looking at one individual with no context. If we're not even getting into standardization, if there were several things that were different about 
when they did their first scan. Let's say even it's Dex. I'm not sure if it was Dex or not, or if he shared. Um, yeah. But say it was Dex. Okay. So if there was, uh, if there were different protocols, say the individual was overnight fasted or essentially fasted, came in early in the morning for one scan. Uh, the other scan, maybe they came in during the afternoon for scheduling availability, what have you. That alone could induce um, several kilos of changes in some of these compartments. In addition to the fact, whenever you're assessing one person, uh, the error rates are larger. It's possible that person is kind of like dead on the average error you'd see, but it's very possible they're an outlier in one of the mm. other directions. So, um, yeah, point being, uh, as you all know, we shouldn't shouldn't base too much on a sample size of one with no documentation of the methods or context or how large were these changes or anything like that. So that's good um, to know. So that's kind of a side note, but um, yeah. So in terms of the the studies themselves, would you just like a um, yeah, go over yeah. go over the numbers. I sent them to you because I'm like, am I am I missing something here? Yeah, so I'll say uh, so a few components. One thing I'll mention is um, this is based on you know a series of papers dating back, I guess a couple decades. Some of these were by um, Stephen Hamesfield is a giant in the area of body composition. I've yeah. been fortunate to work with him on a couple um, papers here just a lot in the last year or two, uh, and then more recently this kind of idea I'm about to talk about was sort of. Um, Rediscussed by Jeremy Lenicky, who's another great uh, researcher in this area. But um, this this concept I mentioned is that with um, large weight losses, there are kind of some considerations uh, we need to look at where we could have lean mass losses, uh, even if all the procedures are performed correctly. We might have lean mass losses; they're a little bit inflated relative to what actual truth is. And uh, one reason for that is that even though adipose tissue is, you know, storing lipid and has very high lipid content in adipocytes, there are non-fat components. So there are there is some amount of water content and protein content in these adipocytes. Um, so as they they shrink with weight loss, um, we're losing some of those non-lipid components as well. Some of the small amount of water that was stored with lipid. Uh, this is not the same amount as like stored with glycogen. We know, you know, storing a gram of glycogen will store that with about three grams of water. It's not nearly that much for lipid, but you do lose some water, lose some protein as you're losing this lipid. Um, so there's some some math to kind of correct lean mass losses uh, for the, what we call, what I'm describing is the, the fat-free um, component of adipose tissue. So the fact that adipose tissue is not 100% lipid. So when you, when you do these corrections, it's based on kind of assumed average that about 85% um, of adipose tissue with <laughs> actual fat, like stored triglyceride. So you can run some corrections, but essentially if you do that, it usually uh, reduces the amount of lean mass that was reported. So you, you sent over those studies and I took a look at them. So um, the semaglutide, for, for my pronunciation. Sem uh, semaglutide, you could, for, semag for this podcast, you could say ozempic Wigovi. <laughs> it doesn't, it doesn't okay. matter. It's much easier. Um, so for there in that group, for example, the reported lean mass loss was right around seven kilograms, like 6.92 kilograms. If you did this correction, which is just simple math, and this is published in, it's published in obesity journal and it's been published in journals prior to that, but just this simple correction to try to account for some of that fat free component from adipose tissue, not from other lean mass that was lost. Um, it takes that lean mass loss down to right about five kilograms. So that knocks off about two of the kilograms. It doesn't completely wipe this out saying like, you know, no right. mass was lost. Um, but that's that's a relatively large that's reduction. Significant. That's significant. Yeah. very significant for what, especially for the statistics that they're like, you know, concerned about. Or at yes. least that they're scaring people about. Yep. And then similarly, we're, you know, chatting offline just before we started recording, but the, even the placebo group had some mm -hmm. mass loss, about one and a half kilos. It, that correction takes that down to 
uh, minus 0.2 kilograms. So essentially, mm. essentially nothing. Um, so essentially levels levels that out. Uh, and then similarly, I don't know if you want to go trial by trial, but the similar things were seen in the the other trial you sent as well. Terzepatide. Yeah. Yes. So in that um, in that study, it's a little more interesting because those lean mass losses were much smaller. Yeah. So it actually this correction completely wiped them out. Um, so in that in the primary group where there was one in one point six kilos lost, uh, the correction made it to a gain of zero point one kilos. So essentially, hmm. no no change once you've done that correction. Hmm. Um, the uh, placebo group it didn't change because there was there was no change in uh, fat-free mass in this case in that group but the um, semaglutide that had lost almost a kilo it came out to a gain of 0.2 kilograms so in some cases like when they're the smaller losses it might wipe out that loss completely by employing mm -hmm. this correction uh, in the large losses it doesn't wipe it out completely but reduces the magnitude and this is not a perfect correction but again it's based on the fact we know we are losing um, components of adipose tissue that beyond just the fat itself. Yeah, oh, that's, so, that's, yeah that, no, that's it's really point. interesting. Um, and that's Jeremy Lenneke. He had a paper out a few years ago and kind of discussing that. Is that right? Yes, that is correct. Okay, so can you explain, because we were talking about how the one study I sent you, they used bod pod. And can you explain how you even get, again, I know we did the podcast before, but for those listening and for me, how do you how do you get muscle mass from a DEXA scan? Um, yeah, so the real answer is you don't. Yeah, uh, right. You're setting me up nicely for that answer. Yeah. Yeah, so uh, DEXA is a great technique. Uh, it's a precise technique, a r relatively valid technique. Uh, you can estimate skeletal muscle. Also, I'll just start. I'll start from the beginning. So yeah. we, we put someone on a DEXA scanner. We're scanning them. I think for any method, it's important to realize we are measuring something but then we're using some like conversions and assumptions to get to what we're actually interested in, which is body composition. We have to estimate that because we can't, uh, in living humans, truly measure body composition. We can't dissect them physically or chemically uh, while they're you know alive. Not preferably. Not preferable, no. So we lay someone down. We're essentially shooting x-rays of different energies through them. We're looking at how that um, x-ray energy is attenuated or kind of reduced as it passes through different body tissues. Uh, and from that for DEXA, there are kind of two main comparisons that are being used. Uh, it's kind of finding pixels in this 2D image that's being created, pixels that contain bone versus those that don't contain bone. And then within those that don't contain bone, it's looking at uh, lean mass pixels and fat mass pixels. Uh, and in this case, we're not talking about like skeletal muscle and adipose tissue. We're just talking about molecules in the body. It's like molecules of lean, molecules of fat. Uh, we know that those attenuate these x-rays differently, and that's what we're basing this on. But ultimately, you get this, this 2D image uh, with pixels that are either bone uh, or some proportion of lean and fat. So if we have uh, what's reported, it's often called lean body mass. So like in the study you sent, they're calling it mm -hmm. lean body mass. Uh, a little bit better term would be lean soft tissue. So soft tissue meaning non-bone and lean meaning non-fat. So all the tissue that is not fat and not bone is included in there. Uh, so water, for example, is included in lean soft tissue mm -hmm. uh, from DEXA. So lean soft tissue includes, you know, there's a lot of overlap with muscle. We could do the same thing with muscle. Muscle is mostly fat-free mass. It has a little bit of lipid content, um, but most of muscle would be included in that, that lean soft tissue compartment. Um, so when they're reporting all these lean mass changes, that lean soft tissue, though, uh, it has the water wherever it is in the body. So like most of, and protein as well, so like most of organ content. Uh, glycogen, so carbohydrate stores would be included in this, which I think is 
uh, important, especially if you're going on a um, weight loss program where you could have some changes in early changes in like glycogen and water stores that would show up in the lean mass compartment on DEXA. Um, so you can't truly get skeletal muscle. There are equations which it probably would have been helpful for them to use here. There are equations based on um, the appendicular lean mass. So just the lean mass you're seeing in the arms and legs where you can plug those into equations that were developed using MRI, which can assess skeletal muscle. Um, you can plug them into these equations and get an estimate of skeletal muscle. And the reason we do that is because there's a lot going on in the trunk in terms of fat-free mass uh, that is not skeletal muscle, not necessarily what we're interested in. So the, the organ mass, for example, is something that could be complicated here because you can have changes in, in organ mass with like substantial weight loss like this. Mm -hmm. um, so that kind of confuses the trunk. So um, several series of equations just use appendicular lean mass from DEXA to predict skeletal muscle. I would personally be curious to see those data from these trials. If they had reported That's that, it would have been but, kind of a nice <clears> one. Yeah, they probably least. have that data. Maybe. Yeah, they, they definitely do. So it probably, um, maybe not in the trial, but definitely on the Dexter report someone, that spits it out. So someone has it. We could, we should, uh, yeah, maybe we should, yeah, maybe we need to. We got to have Grant pioneer this, I think. Yeah. We'll yeah, make I, it happen, actually. Keep going. We'll, yeah. we'll, we'll talk offline. <laughs> um, so, I mean, I can I can pause there to see what direction we want to go. But for, no, for that, Dexter, again, that's what we're getting lean soft tissue, okay. sometimes called lean body mass, has some relationship with skeletal muscle, but is not yes. directly equivalent. That's what I wanted you. Yeah. To, that's what I wanted you to explain. So when somebody loses lean, but when when it shows a loss of lean body mass, it's not necessarily muscle. Is that what you're saying? It it, it, it they they assume the assumption is that a lot of it is it could be muscle, but it doesn't necessarily right. mean it could be water changes. Yeah, I mean, it is. It's it's definitely all the things above, right? I mean, it's definitely it's they're losing something. A lot of water, right? Fair yep. amount of water. Could be. Yeah, so really the lean mass, any, anything that is not bone, mineral, or molecules of fat is included in lean mass. So yeah, the water, um, some amount of, this won't apply to DEX as much, some amount of free-floating mineral, which you don't need to worry about, it's very small here, but glycogen, um, certainly protein itself, whether that's in skeletal muscle or within um, mm -hmm. organs or elsewhere. Okay. Yeah. And then when you do a bod pod, how, explain that. Yeah. Yeah, so... Big picture, there are there are similarities in the variables you're getting. So you'll ultimately get fat mass and fat-free mass. Mm -hmm. So here we're not looking at bone specifically. So in this case, we'll have an estimate of molecules of fat and molecules of everything else, which okay. would include bone in this case. In, in this case. <coughs> um, the principles that are used, very different. So DEX, again, imaging technology, this is based on, uh, you know, like we're creating these pixels based on attenuation of x-rays at specific um, locations. Again, this is produced as an image. Um, bod pod, in contrast, for those who you haven't seen it, when we bring someone in and do a bod pod in our lab, we weigh them on a calibrated scale in minimal form-fitting clothing. Um, we have them enter this chamber. So they sit in a sealed chamber. Um, so they're sitting in a chamber of air. There's another separate chamber of air behind them. And the two chambers are connected by a little diaphragm. And that diaphragm will oscillate and cause slight changes in the pressure and volume in these two different air compartments. Uh, and based on that kind of uh, based on that relationship and just pressure volume relationships, we can estimate the volume of that person's body. Uh, and we go through a lot of calibration. It takes 15 to 30 minutes to calibrate the bod pods. We have Jeez. a cylinder. We know exactly how big it is. We put it in, we calibrate it, make sure everything is um, operating correctly. But ultimately we can get the, the volume and the density of the body. So from there and, and bod pod for anyone familiar with older techniques, it's just kind of a slightly more modern version of underwater weighing or hydrostatic yeah. weighing. 
Um, that's but what be- we did back in my day. Yep. Back in Michigan State. That's what we did. <laughs> yeah, relatively similar principles, though. We just know there's a different um, density, essentially, of fat-free mass and, and fat mass. So we can uh, kind of use all this information to estimate from these kind of old old equations, uh, estimate fat-free mass and fat mass. So, Which is pretty good, right? I mean, the <clears throat> like you said, that's, that's pretty well validated, uh, generally relatively consistent. It, it is a... Right? It is a pretty good method. All these methods, again, still, you know, what I mentioned about in an individual, it's difficult. Um, mm-hmm. There are some limitations, really, of both of these. A big one is water, which we've touched on mm-hmm. a little bit, but neither of these are accounting for for water specifically. So uh, they all have these assumptions. Bonpod, for example, it assumes that everyone's fat-free mass is about 73% water. Uh, but we know from cadaver analysis and like other in vivo studies that it actually varies from person to person. That's a good population average, but certain populations of um, athletes or maybe weight-reduced people, different groups, will have a different proportion of their fat-free mass as water. So if you have a whole population you're assessing who varies on that characteristic, you could kind of have systematic error in your fat-free mass estimates or individual error. If you're someone who just has different fat-free mass properties uh, than these population averages, you might have a pretty inaccurate assessment with one of these two compartment models like BODPOD that are splitting all of your body mass into just fat mass or fat-free mass. Um, but with all that said, it is viewed as a relatively good method. It's just uh, not perfect, and, and no individual method is. Okay. So just to go back on that, I did send you a study where they compared semaglutide, one milligram to terzepatide, I believe, up to 15 milligrams. Mm-hmm. And they looked at, they didn't do a DEXA, so we can't really compare that, but they did use BODPOD, I believe, yes. uh, in the analyses. And um, it looked like, relatively low for both of them low amounts of lean body mass loss if, if, if i'm remembering that uh, yes little, so it, it was, yeah, a, what, was, it was a, what was your a, interpretation of that of that subset of that it was study. like a phase one it was a phase one study because i think they were looking at strictly appetite and changes in caloric intake and they, it was a very short study right um because it was phase one it wasn't a subset of the uh of so. the phase three semaglutide no i don't believe so i believe it was phase one if i'm uh, thinking correctly, it doesn't totally matter, but like it was, it was relatively small. But I, I just remember going, "Oh, did they use Dexa in this one?" Because I was trying to f- go down this rabbit hole. I'm like, "No, use BodPod. That's interesting." Okay. Um, yes, I would say comparing across those two studies, I think how because uh, you're right, the amount of lean mass loss is very small um, yeah. in that study using BodPod. Um, I would feel relatively comfortable saying that I think some amount of that discrepancy between the studies must be due to the, the body composition assessment method. Okay. Um, I don't know how much this has been characterized. This is certainly not my area of expertise, but um, if there are other effects of these pharmaceuticals on body water stores, for example, um, that's certainly something that could affect these technologies differently as like an hmm. image technology or a, a density-based um, technology. Uh, with that said, even though there was small lean mass loss, as I mentioned, if you employed this correction we discussed, it essentially wiped it out where every every group was between zero and plus 0.2 kilograms fat-free mass if you employed that correction. Um, so yeah, I'd say I would say the methods definitely played a role there. Um, this would probably be, if, if there's sort of uncertain effects of these pharmaceuticals on components that would relate to the validity of the body composition devices. This is just me showing my research bias. Yeah, no. I, it would be great if someone could run a study where they're they're using multiple common methods of use clinically and seeing like are there effects as pharmaceutical that are causing these body composition changes to track differently depending on if we're using BodPod or DEXA or like a bioimpedance scale that you know some clinic may have. 
So that was so anecdotally, uh, a lot of people have done the in body because that's what's that's what they have. Those and you can describe the in body the bioimpedance, um, but those showed very little. Com- with you know hundreds of people sent me their in bodies and like I didn't lose any uh, muscle according to my in bodies, um, and maybe you can do a quick thing here. And then and after we talk about that, I'm, I want to say like, if you were trying to measure literally muscle loss, what would you do as a researcher? But before we do that, kind of discuss the, the in body, what everybody sees. And we kind of did this on the last podcast because there's a similar method mm-hmm. to what you use at home with your scales, but most people are using in bodies because I think they're at the gyms and whatever. Yes. Um, so first I'll say that just the places that have in bodies, yeah, they're, they're at gyms, they're in supplement stores and so on. Uh, it's another time you have to have heightened awareness of standardization because bioimpedance can be a good technology, but it is very sensitive to um, prior exercise, food and fluid intake, and so on. So if you're listening to this and you want to use InBody, that's fine. I'd recommend recommend assessments in the morning, um, fasted ideally from food and fluid, ideally rested from exercise overnight or longer. We usually employ at least 24 hours of rest from exercise. Uh, if you follow all those items and assess the same way, same amount of clothing and so on, they can be relatively accurate. Um, but yeah, all bioimpedance technologies work by just injecting small imperceptible currents um, through these electrodes that are in contact with your skin. Um, for most embodies, that's in your feet and your hands. Uh, and based on what the device knows it injected into your body and then what it receives back at the electrodes, it can get essentially an indication of how much that electrical signal, how easily that electrical signal traveled to your body um, with the main idea being fat-free mass that we've talked to because it, it possesses water. Uh, it conducts the electrical current more easily than um, fat mass, molecular fat mass that will sort of impede this current. Uh, so that's the general principle. Some of these devices are great. InBody in general performs well. It's relatively well validated. Um, again, not, not perfect. And if there are you know, unknown effects of these pharmaceuticals on relevant body compartments, fluid, definitely relevant here. Uh, It's possible you could be seeing things or not seeing things that that could be somewhat a function of like physiological effects of these uh, pharmaceuticals. Again, I'm I'm uncertain on that, but that's interesting. Sometimes, you know, we do see people, obviously it's a known side effect. These drugs can cause nausea, vomiting, and Mm -hmm. maybe decreased intake of, of, fluid potentially that's a it's an interesting that's that's why we caution again you know about (coughs) dehydration you know spencer just for what it's worth the the, i think the trial you're talking about the one that was just published a month ago no that compared terzepatide reduces appetite energy intake fat mass and it's you know and and it was um and it was again it was it was a secondary analysis of a randomized but wasn't a trial it it doesn't say that and it and it cites the previously published phase three trial of semaglutide versus terzepatide. What it doesn't get into say is, was this a sub analysis of that one? And they just, you know, picked these people. It doesn't really get in. So I think we have to look at the supplementary supplementary index. Cause I was aware of this small trial. I just thought it was a separate trial that they did. And it's, um, but, but it may be a sub analysis of that. um, Okay. Semaglutide versus terzepatide. Okay, Grant. Now here's the question: If you're if you're doing a study and you go do are like cause here's the, here's the worry. We don't want we want to make sure. And as my brother said, clinically these things are amazing drugs for the right person, the clinically indicated person, not you know 
super lean athletes and Hollywood right. stars that are just trying to lose 10 and, pounds. And, you know, to, and to be fair, Peter Tia, a lot of his patients might not need it, right? Yeah, he well, might that, be that's, seeing too many That's a concern. Well I don't, don't want to, like, make we don't the claim assume. that he's I, – I don't. Yeah, I don't want to do that because that, that would get into, like, I don't know, whatever, slander, libel. I don't know. I can never remember. <laughs> well, but it might be, though. So if, if It could be. It case, could be. I don't, I don't know, know if they're the correct patient. So anyway, we can – that's a – potential i'll just i'll just say um but if you're designing if we don't we i hope and it looks like if there's anything semaglutide versus terzepatide um we you know you have the head-to-head with the bod pod data that's there and a very small thing but based on not head-to-head larger groups it looks like if anything there is a potential for an extra catabolic effect from semaglutide or a change in fluid effects compared to the terzepatide one that didn't have this, the lean body mass loss. So if you're designing a trial that would go like, okay, I want to know if this drug is truly catabolic and I want to know it's like muscle mass and not just kind of assume from a DEXA scan. How are you measuring that? How are you going to do that? Yeah. So ideally you'd use whole body MRI. Okay. Uh, and not only would this allow you to look at the skeletal muscle itself, but it would allow you to look at other components that would mostly be grouped under fat-free mass that could be changing. Um, so like organ organ mass, for example. Uh, and there's studies that have done this where they can tease out. It's like, okay, if we're seeing quote-unquote lean loss or fat mass loss uh, with substantial weight loss, where is this coming from? MRI can really answer that because it can look at all these relevant components separately at the organ tissue level. So we're looking at actual organs or tissues you could isolate anatomically. Um, which is different than what we've been talking about so far, which is just kind of molecules of fat anywhere in the body, non-fat molecules anywhere in the body, and so on. So ideal whole body MRI. If that wasn't possible, you could do something just like um, segmental MRI or CT scan or peripheral quantitative CT, um, something that would allow you to at least check some representative uh, muscle groups. Uh, you really could even do ultrasound. So in our lab, for example, we'll often do a four compartment model, which is molecular level. We're talking about just like molecules of, you know, fat, water, protein, and so on. Um, but we'll pair that with ultrasound. So we're looking at representative muscle groups, checking the actual muscle thickness um, as uh, just to help us interpret. So if we see an increase in fat-free mass, we're like, okay, that's good, but really we're interested in increasing muscle. So let's check these ultra ultrasound data. Also, we also see increase in these specific muscle groups we're checking. That makes us feel more confident that we are seeing an increase in fat-free mass due to increases in, in muscularity, um, say yeah. in a training study. That's so interesting. How much is a whole body MRI on a research scale compared to a DEXA scan? How much does it cost? Yeah. So here, I think our, our MRI facility on campus, I think is actually on the affordable side. And I know it's over $500 an hour to um, do the scan. I think it depends on the specific protocol, like how many um, slices you're taking and so on for, for how quickly you can do a whole body scan. Okay. Um, so certainly, I'll, I'll put it in the more expensive realm. Many studies using MRI, it seems like it's essentially in a you know, medical facility where they're, they they have kind of unique access or possibly are even conducting scans anyway and, and use that, um, you know, paired with DEXA data as a way to make it into a body composition that's study. Fascinating. Yeah. I think that's pretty cool. Um, it, you're a wealth of, of knowledge here because you're going way beyond our oh, uh, expertise. <laughs> I love it's, it. It's, I love it. Amazing. I'm like, yeah, it's, I'm like it's learning. Really cool. I mean, and, and that's the thing. I just don't think enough people are paying attention to uh, these nuances that need to be paid yeah. attention to when they're interpreting these and then making huge, broad claims to a large Which could be harmful. Uh, part of the population. Yeah, it's, I mean, yeah, either it's way, I think I do think this needs to be studied more. I, I'm not going to say well, yeah. 
forget it, stupid. Because there is well, no, a slight, not at there all. Is a slight we, signal. We love muscle. We want muscle. Yeah. Okay, here's good. Here, okay, here's my anecdote of, of the patient. The, the highest that I saw was a 38% lean body mass loss, but they their strength gains were I'm not going to say extraordinary, but very good. But they had to be lifting weights then. They were. Right. But they, so, but they still had a 38% lean body mass loss. So what, what Grant's really? saying is that oh, I see fluid shifts, okay, yeah. like some sort of fluid right. shifts. I don't know. Something is didn't make sense. Is it possible they, they got stronger and still lost a lot of muscle? Probably like not. Like so how, do you see I'm, that? I'm sure it's I'm sure it's possible. Um, one thing I've mentioned that we I don't think we've gotten into directly, but there are – if, if I was designing a study, like similar study, say in addition to using whole body MRI, there might be, uh, or say you don't have access to that technique, there might be some merit to doing your baseline assessment, but then doing another assessment within a few weeks to a month, say like one to four weeks, because there are some relatively well-characterized kind of initial kind of rapid changes uh, in weight loss where you would see kind of a higher proportion loss as fat-free mass, but this might largely be due to um, reduced glycogen that then stabilizes and the associated water that then stabilizes as well as some some early protein loss that could be some from skeletal muscle, some from other tissues. Um, but I would personally be curious to see how much of this, if we're seeing this potentially notable lean mass loss after like a year or two years, how much of that was really rapid. And I don't know, I, I didn't see on there um, yeah. kind of the trajectory, if this is pretty linear on the weight loss or if it is pretty quick. If it's pretty linear, uh, this may not be as much of an issue. That's, but. Re- that's relatively linear. I mean, if so okay. if we want to look at this this good comparison that they just <laughs> published a month ago that Spencer talked about, um, you know, semaglutide versus terzepatide. And again, it's only one milligram semaglutide, by the way. But, uh, you know, the weight loss was, you know, a pretty linear weight loss over 28 weeks, you know, over, over uh, half of a year. And... Um, you know, and yeah, and, and going back to that, Spencer, I mean, yeah, the, the, and that was the bod pod one, the fat free mass change in kilograms was only, it was 0.8 for semaglutide and 1.6 for terzepatide compared to the negative 5.9, 9.7 uh, respective kilograms of fat mass in that one. Yeah. I mean, that, so, so anyways, we, we are, um, and who is your, who is your, uh, uh, mentor, you said. Sorry, my mentor. Yeah, who's the who's oh. the godfather of? Uh, oh yeah, so uh, he he didn't mentor me formally. I you know I wish he's great. Stephen Hamesfield. Yeah, is uh, just a giant in this field. So. Yeah, he's he's a legend even to us. We don't yeah. do yeah. anything. Yeah. So it'd be interesting. I I mean we we're looking into figuring out how to do these trials because I I just my thing is we we want we're this is the docs who lift podcast. We want everybody to lift weights. We're shills, and so right. are you. So. But the, but if we're thinking practically, not everybody is going to lift. So we ha- like we do see a clinical benefit in these medicines for the the right indicated person. But at the same time, hey, is there a concern for some of these other things? Because maybe they wouldn't be able to continue the medicine long term because of costs. And then are we setting these people up for something else down the line? I we should study it. I don't think we should completely dismiss it. But um. I think this, I'm just trying to think of conceptually how this should be studied. And yeah, and I think your anecdote about the strength, even though there was training, is important. Even in non training individuals, if you could throw in some muscle function metrics, that would yeah. help a lot because yeah. Yeah, there are some confusion or, you know, some, some muddy waters about this lean mass loss, especially if we're just doing a quad pod, something like that. Mm-hmm. But if you could see, it's like they're maintaining, maybe even improving, who knows, muscle function, but say even just hoping for maintaining muscle function through relevant indicators, you know, simple like. <clears throat> Grip strength and like rate of force development, yeah. some lower body testing, and so on. I think that'd be a great way to complement um, the body comp yeah. side. 
you know, that actually brings up another, you know, from my anecdotal experience with patients um, doing a ton of semaglutide, um, you know, and then terzepatide just over the past year, you know, because I see a higher proportion of people with type 2 diabetes and more severe disease, usually older, uh, oftentimes with heart disease, kidney disease, liver disease. Uh, and so they're, they have severe obesity, right? They have real severe disease. They lose weight on semaglutide. Their sugars get better. They reduce their cardiovascular risk, all these things. Well, guess what else happens even if they're not into exercising per se as their weight goes down? I know Spencer knows the answer to this, but their, their non-exercise functional activity goes up all the time. So if they're losing a significant amount of lean muscle mass, I, I don't know because I don't do body composition on them. We're just doing clinical monitoring, but their physical activity and their exercise and their fitness does generally go up, even if they're not really trying per se. Of course, we're always encouraging them, but um, you know, so, so I would say their functional status almost always improves too. So their clinical, you know, uh, cardiometabolic health improves. Their functional status improves, and we have data to support that too, by the way. I mean, whether or not the, the, the body composition shows reduced muscle mass, but um, the, their functional status improves. Spencer, we have, we have tons of data on semaglutide for improved functional status. Yeah. Not, maybe not strength per se, and that would be great, but, but you know, just general f- physical function is a, is a really important what, aspect. What about, what about, are you into the muscle quality? Like, because some people think that, like, sure, you can lose some muscle, but but you actually are proving the quality of the, of the fibers. Are you into any of that? Cause that's, I got into this debate at the obesity week, uh, Casey and, and, and the, um, Dr. Jakisic was like, you know, I'm not, I'm not so keen on who cares about some of the lean body mass losses. Cause maybe you can make the quality better at the same time. And that's more important mm-hmm. than the actual amount. I don't know. Do you, do you know much yeah. about that? Yeah. So we'll sometimes look at that from, from ultrasound. You could do that from other imaging techniques. Um, not from like a whole body dexa necessarily, but certainly from like MRI, CT, and ultrasound, we can do that. Do and biopsies or anything like that? You, I mean, you could do that. We do that some in our department. That's not my particular area. That's not your expertise. Of interest. I don't. I don't. Uh, yeah, don't love it. But uh, yeah, you could certainly look at that and actually look at say like lipid, I don't know, infiltration huh. into the muscle. Yeah. Uh, but you can do that visually as well from the, these imaging techniques, and it is something that's relevant. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know if you'd have reduction. I'd have to look at that. I'm not certain if you could have a reduction of lipid content to the extent where it's like, yeah, you're truly like detectively losing mass here, um, mm-hmm. but improving the quality. Uh, I think you certainly could see improvements in muscle quality, but I'm not sure. If, I think there'd be like some relationship between those two things, but not direct where it's yeah, like- Sometimes, yeah, sometimes we can just see it. Like, you know, I look at Spencer sometimes and can tell his muscle quality is going down the tubes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, Casey had <laughs> extremely high muscle quality in utero. He doesn't have to. He doesn't even have to do anything anymore. He um, walks around is huge. I love what you all were saying though about, or, <laughs> um, Casey, what you're saying about the the other metrics. I mean, I was I was lecturing on that this week in the context of athletes saying that, like, when you because there are errors in every body composition method, there are assumptions, all of this, especially if you're looking at one individual. Um, I always recommend being very cautious to make like what I'd call like a, a programming change based on that variable alone. So again, this was in the context of athletes, but we're saying if if their performance is good, if subjectively they're feeling good, if like all these signals look positive, but you have a poor body comp result, you shouldn't like jump ship and change mm-hmm. programs. Be like, oh, yeah. we need to switch it all up because of that. And I feel like there are a lot of parallels there. You're like, okay, 
you know, maybe they have testing, maybe they don't, maybe it's just looking at these studies, but you're like, you know, I see the concern there, but every, all these other really important factors that we are evaluating physical function um, are improving. So I feel like that's a great case for being a little skeptical to go too far with um, jumping ship just due to body comp changes. Right. Yeah. This might have been this might have been my favorite podcast so far. I mean, this was really insightful. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we, like Grant, you are you. just like the man. Yeah, um, yeah. like because it just this is going to get uncomfortable. We're going to flatter you so much. Yeah, <laughs> if we were there in person, I don't know what would be going on here. Yep, I just got fired again. <laughs> I, I'm on. I'm teetering there. Oh yeah. But seriously, thank you so much for coming on. Um, again, this offline we'll be discussing possible research we we're discussing this as a team as as well at my company of, of this needs to be addressed needs mm-hmm. to be looked at we're still not concerned clinically but right. we think it does need to be studied so. of course and it, you know it's, it's good to note and and we want people to lift weights when in yeah. doubt everyone please resistance train eat well you know take your medicine if it's indicated take your say your prayers take your vitamins <laughs> <Absolutely>. <laughs> Thanks so much. Thanks so thanks so much for coming on and being the expert in this field. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. All right. Here's our outro. Everybody give this a share. If you heard anybody talking about lean mass losses and all that, this is the podcast that you need to listen to. Send it to Megan Kelly. (laughs) Let's put Grant on there. Let's just put it in. Oh yeah. Let's get Grant on Megan Kelly. All right. Somebody, please. All right. Here's our outro. <laughs> this podcast is for entertainment and education and information purposes only. Remember, the physicians on this podcast are not your physician. It should not be considered professional or personalized medical advice. It should not be used to replace speaking with your physician or medical professional to discuss your specific health concerns. The topics discussed should not be used solely to diagnose or treat any condition. As a result, we are not responsible for any unwanted medical outcomes. The views and opinions discussed are of those of the host only and do not represent those of any other entities.